a special episode this week. I'm talking to Nick Meyer, Hollywood director, writer, novelist. He has enjoyed a spectacular career, and I'm sure any film podcast would be able to talk to him for hours, uh, days, weeks about his many achievements, um, but not this podcast. We are obsessed and stuck on one subject, nuclear war. And so I spoke to Mr. Meyer about one film only, The Day After. Now I'm sure Atomic Hobo listeners don't need any explanation of what The Day After was, but just in case, let's have a quick intro. The lazy way to describe the film, I suppose, is the American equivalent of Threads. That is a TV film, which was broadcast in the early 80s, about the effects of nuclear war on ordinary people. And it was a film which had a huge impact. In fact, its impact was surely bigger than that of Threads, because, uh, well, it's America we're talking about. The day after was shown to the United States, whereas Threads went out on BBC Two on a Sunday night. And yes, the day after was watched and discussed in the Pentagon and by Ronald Reagan himself, as you will hear in the episode. So let's start. Here is my conversation with Nick Meyer. I talked to him on Zoom, uh, me in Glasgow, he on the east coast of America. And I am, of course, hugely grateful that he took the time to speak to me, to us, to talk about the day after. Can we start off, Nick, with something quite basic, I suppose? Why did you agree to direct the day after when um, ABC came to you and asked? Well, it's a little involved. I didn't, <clears throat> I was the third director who was offered, um, third or fourth director who was offered to direct the movie. And I didn't really want to direct it at all in the same way that I think most people don't want to think about nuclear war. We sort of know it's out there that since 1945, we have been faced for the first time in human history with the prospect of our, or the reality of our ability to destroy ourselves. And understandably, we don't like to think about that <clears throat> in the words of George Bush II, uh, go shopping. Um, it's, it's more pleasant and we just sort of ignore it. And I had made or been involved with the making of two very successful movies. I was more or less at the start of my career and feature film directors back then uh, did not go off and do television anyway. That was considered a sort of a step down or back. But as it happens, I was being psychoanalyzed at the time and my shrink who never spoke, uh, listened to me lying on the couch and trying to talk my way out of doing this, and then suddenly broke his silence and said, well, I think this is where we find out who you really are. And once he said that, uh, I didn't really feel I had a choice. And. Uh... When you, when you took the job, uh, what kind of research did you do into what the effects of a nuclear blast would be? 
Well, there isn't a lot of information about it, or certainly not a lot of publicized uh, or non-classified information. There were various books, uh, Richard Reeves, I think The Making of the Atomic Bomb, Jonathan Shell, The Fate of the Earth. There were movies, Dr. Strangelove. Um, but even then, all the information was not apparent. For example, we did not know about, nobody knew about at the time we made the movie, nuclear winter. We didn't depict it because we'd never heard about it. Um, we did learn about the electromagnetic pulse, otherwise known as EMP. There was some information about nuclear accidents, the famous Arkansas monkey wrench, or the time two nukes were dropped on North Carolina by us. They didn't go off. Um, how many times of uh, flights of uh, overflying uh, seagulls had been mistaken for incoming Russian missiles. Um, There's a lot of sort of miscellaneous information. Interestingly enough, a new book has just been published called Ashes and something, I can't remember the rest of it, it's brand new. And it's all of a history, a formal history of nuclear accidents. Um, but no such uh, collection as, as far as I was aware. We spoke to some scientists. I remember the producer of the movie, Bob Papazian, uh, kept asking people, well, what would it be like if you were at ground zero of a nuclear explosion? And the answers were uh, far from satisfying, or maybe they were simply incomprehensible. You, you know, and the only footage that was available was footage that was of blasts in the Nevada desert test blast footage that we could get our hands on and used. But those bombs, like the ones at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, were fairly small and primitive compared to, you know, the, the kind of nine or 10 megaton bombs that are stored in all our missile silos. Missile silos that by the way, to my knowledge, still run on floppy disks. Okay, thank you. Um, and the next question is one which a lot of my Twitter followers are, are desperate to ask. Were there any, any things you were not allowed or advised not to portray or anything which was cut for being too strong or, or too distressing? I know you've mentioned in your book uh, that the idea of having a diaphragm on scene was controversial but was there anything connected to nuclear war specifically that you were told to or advised to stay away from? We were offered very early on in the making of the movie, the cooperation of the Department of Defense who were offering to lend us men and, and props and tanks and God knows what all else on one condition, that we ensured that it was clear that we made clear that it was the Soviet Union who started the war. This was absolutely inimical to our purposes. We didn't, that wasn't the, we didn't want to know about who started it because the people on the ground would never know who started it. They'd just be incinerated. So we declined 
help from the Department of Defense and scrounged around with available footage. Um, I was also, we were also admitted into one of the missile silos at nearby Vandenberg Air Force Base, we went down there, which was a, an unsettling experience to say the least. Um, you're way underground in a shielded bunker and there are two soldiers down there who are seated at opposite ends of, of the room out of arm's reach of one another. And both must turn the, the, their keys to launch a missile. They both have to obey the order to launch, but they're both packing sidearms. So I said, what are the sidearms for? And, and somebody said, well, if one of the officers refuses to turn his key, the other can presumably pull a gun on him. And I said, but what good will that do if he doesn't, if he doesn't turn the key, what's he gonna do, shoot him? The second key is out of reach. He can't turn both keys. So, yeah, that was interesting. And um, you've written in, in The View from the Bridge that relations as TV executives were stormy. But then when you were on location in Kansas, you, quote, ignored every one of their directives and challenged them to fire you. So could you tell us a bit more about that, please? Well, it's a little involved, but I had never directed a television movie. In fact, I'd only directed two feature films. So I was a naive in every sense. And one day prior to the beginning of shooting, uh, my producer, Bob Papazian, and I were driving in a car to a meeting. And as usual, I was sort of slow on the uptake. And I said, um, where are we going? And they said, well, we're going to meet with standards and practices. And I said, what is that? And I was told that he, he defined it. And I basically said, oh, this is the censor. We're going to meet the censor. Um, I don't know if you still have the Lord Chamberlain's office in the UK where they decide <clears throat> what can be shown. And I thought about this for a couple of blocks as we were driving along. And I said, but, but shouldn't they have censored the movie before they offered it to me rather than after I agreed to shoot it. And they, he said, well, this is the way it's always done. And I thought about it some more in my sort of peasant way. And I said, but, but, but um, here's the thing. I agreed to shoot that movie. This is a sort of bait and switch. And uh, <clears throat> I have to tell you, going into this movie, this meeting, that I'm not really prepared to obey any of this. I, I don't know what they're going to tell me. Well, they told all kinds of things. Man and woman sat there and Bob had his pad out and was writing down things and said, well, you know, we, we, we can't have this uh, uh, patient in a hospital call his Japanese American doctor Tojo because that's a derogatory term and we're not going to knowingly insult a portion of our viewing public. And I found myself arguing despite myself. And I said, but, but didn't you make a, that big television series Roots? Didn't use the N word because it was about slavery and all. He said, well, that was in, but that was in context was their phrase. And I said, well, what does that mean? It means it was about N word people. That, 
pretty sketchy. And he said, well, Tojo is out. So I said, nothing. The diaphragm was out. Why? Because we will not knowingly appear to endorse birth control. I said, but didn't you make a movie, a TV movie about teenage pregnancy? And the birth control was all over that. He says, ah, yes, but that was in context. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I just said nothing. And they went on through their, their list. And then I went off to uh, Lawrence, Kansas, in Kansas City, Missouri, where much of the movie was made. And I just shot the script. And we were about 10 days in uh, when I got a phone call from ABC. What are you doing? And I said, uh, I'm shooting the movie. Whoa. What are you doing? And he said, but, but you, you said, you, you said, no, I said, no, I, I didn't say anything. I only agreed to shoot the movie, but uh, let me make this easy for you. Why don't you fire me? I mean, I didn't really want to be doing this anyway. We're only 10 days in. Uh, if I leave, I guess Jason Robards will leave. My cinematographer, Gain Rescher, who did Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan for me, I guess he'll leave. But you can replace us. You can replace some of the cast and some of the people. It shouldn't be too. And he said, we'll get back to you. And so a day later, you know, I'm wondering what's going to become of me and how badly I've screwed my Hollywood career with this movie to begin with. Um, and then the next thing I knew, there were a number of them on a speakerphone someplace saying to the something to the effect of, look, look, it's your movie. You shoot it the way you want. But as officers of the ABC Corporation, we have a fiduciary responsibility to tell you that that material can't be in the finished film. And I said, fine, you told me. Goodbye. And in the end, almost all of it was in the movie because the movie is so overpowering that all their other things appear quite trivial and slightly absurd so it was left alone there is a documentary about the making of this movie i don't know if i told you about this no oh well i have to uh, get it for you it's a movie that is currently in circulation and winning prizes everywhere and it's called television event and television event is a documentary about the whole story of making the day after and contains a great deal of material about which I knew nothing. I promise you, I knew nothing. People I thought were my enemies turned out to be my friends. People I thought were my friends turned out to be my enemies. I was just in the dark about doing this. And um, I didn't really understand until I saw a television event that nobody at ABC wanted this movie. Everybody hated it. Everybody knew that the sponsors were hated, would hate it. And indeed they hated it so much that no one sponsored the movie, except I think Orville Redenbacher popcorn. And so General Motors, General Mills, General Foods, all the generals headed for the hills. And the only person at ABC who insisted on this movie was a man I thought was my nemesis named Brandon Stoddard. And Brandon Stoddard was the head of ABC Circle Films. In order to get this film on the air, he had to threaten to resign from ABC if they didn't go through with it. 
he had to endure death threats on him from right-wing crazies of which we have no shortage here. Um, and so there was, there was no support for ABC. And the movie eventually was preceded by so many disclaimers. <laughs> uh, we don't know how this film got made. We don't know who made it. We advise you not to watch it and you know, call your clergyman. Um, and yes, there were things that were cut out of the movie not so much the ones that were censored uh, beforehand, which I ignored and turned out to be mostly irrelevant, but uh, an image or a moment that was deemed just over the top. And by the way, I'm not sure they were wrong in the sense that when you put a movie on television, ever since the invention of the remote control clicker, uh, people don't have to get off the couch in order to change the channel. You just sit there and click away. So I knew that I was really making the optimist's version of a nuclear war, because if I made what it was really going to be like, like the like the British movie Threads, which is ten times more horrifying, that people would reach for the clicker and just not watch it. Thank you. Um, I was going to ask you later on about Threads. Um, the reason I have this career. Um, as a nuclear war writer is because of threads. I saw it on its original broadcast when I was only three years old. <laughs> um, that was a mistake. Yeah, Karen. yeah, it's, it's my dad's fault, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so you you obviously think it's quite a very, very powerful film then. Oh, it's terrific. Yeah, yeah. Uh, turning back to your, to your book, Nick, The View from the Bridge, um, you've written that you walked off the picture for three months and that at one point you contemplated suicides. Can you tell us um, what, what triggered that? Was there anything in particular or just a, an avalanche of, of all the events together? No, 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 uh, it was very specific. Um, I can't remember now whether I walked off or I was fired, which I may have been. It was all about the editing of the finished film. And when we first showed the movie to the executives at ABC, screened it for them. These are guys in, who wear suits. And they all came out of the screening room weeping. And Bob and I looked at each other and went, hey, we're home free. But then they started to hack away at it. And we got into a whole issue. And, and, and when the movie was initially proposed, it was proposed as a two-part movie. It was going to be two nights. And I thought that the screenplay, which for my purposes was excellent, because it was just a TV movie about people going about their business. They're not politicians, they're not military, they're planning for weddings, they're touring museums, and then they get nuked. Once the movie, once the movie lost all its sponsors, there was no need to stretch it over two nights to justify ad revenue in order to defray the cost of the movie. So then we got into a tug of war about what the contents were. And eventually my editor was instructed to do something. He refused to do it. They fired him. They brought in another editor who did his own, did one of the executives cut of the movie, which apparently was so bad. I can't remember now, it was years ago 
but he actually succeeded in having the Russians starting the war, which was the one thing we didn't want to say was who started it, but not the subject of the movie. So I had endured, you know, over a year of toil and tribulation to get this thing in the can. Now I, I, I walked off after my editor or I was fired and they were recutting it and making a mess. And yeah, I crawled into bed. I don't know how seriously I was thinking about suicide, but I was extremely depressed, extremely upset. And it fell to my agent to do a lot of behind the scenes. And I, I think when ABC saw the other cut of the movie, they were appalled by what had become of it. And so after a protracted series of negotiations and memoranda with point by point things between me and Brandon Stoddard, I came back on the movie. One thing was for sure, ABC didn't want a scandal about this. They didn't want me to go public about what was being done to the movie or the filmmakers. That was not the kind of press that they wanted and was going to give opponents of the film, you know, a lot of ammo. So compromises were made and I got to come back and I got almost all of what I wanted in the finished film. And in the foreign theatrical version where the film was shown overseas, I got even more stuff. So if you want to watch the movie, the so-called theatrical version or the foreign version, that was the, that's the preferred version. Thing that I ought to, you know, point out is that it was never intended to be a good movie because I knew that if I made a movie with stunning cinematography, stunning special effects, a great hit song, um, brilliant acting, that people would discuss all those things and they wouldn't discuss the movie, the topic. So I didn't want memorable performances. I didn't want memorable cinematography. I didn't want music. I didn't want to be goosing anybody's emotions after the opening credits. And so uh, it was a, a counterintuitive exercise for somebody who was fancying himself a film director to make something that was in effect a public service announcement rather than, my God, did you see Joe Beth Williams? She was just in crush. She broke your heart. And the press really sort of always being the press and reflecting the need to gin up controversy and sell newspapers or whatever there was they were selling didn't never focused on the movie only focused on who started it <laughs> thank you my next question is what was mood and morale like on set particularly during the most harrowing scenes and how did you cope personally with such a forbidding subject I think there was a fair amount of gallows humor to get us through it. I think the actors had it the hardest because they had to imagine themselves in these scenes. And I remember that Steve Gutenberg, who's basically does a lot of light comedy, 
uh, had uh, nuclear nightmares during the shooting, which we called nuke-mares, or he called them nuke-mares. I remember one, somebody saying, you know, wouldn't it be incredible if there was an actual nuclear war while we were filming the movie, think of the footage that we would, you know, get, you know, it was sort of that kind of silliness. But the rest of the time, I was just preoccupied with getting the shots and keeping to the schedule and not becoming distracted or diverted by my instincts for making something cinematically um, that calls attention to itself in terms of cinema. Just kept your head down, your shoulder to the wheel, and you just kept doing it. Yeah, yeah, okay. If we think back to the film itself, is, is there a, a scene which stands out for you as the most, it sounds quite childish perhaps, but your favorite scene or at least the most powerful? I know that speaking to my followers on social media, everyone mentions the scene where Mrs. Dahlberg is making the bed and has to be dragged away from the bed. Um, another one of my followers mentioned the famous scene of the Minutemen streaking through the sky above the hospital. Um, is there a particular scene which always stays in your memory from the film? Well, there are. Um, I sort of hesitate to call attention to what my particular preferences are. It's not the way I want people to watch the movie. The director says this. I, you know, I think, first of all, artists lose all proprietary authority over their creations when they're done. And my opinion is just another response at this point. And I think I'd prefer not to draw attention to what my responses to the movie is or are, and just let people experience it for themselves and decide what they're going to do about it. This is a movie that ultimately contributed to Ronald Reagan's decision to go to Reykjavik and sign the Intermediate Range uh, Missile Treaty with uh, Soviet Premier Gorbachev in, in, in Iceland. Well, connected to mentioning Ronald Reagan, what was the response from the White House to the film? Um, I understand they saw it before broadcast and they submitted uh, notes. So did they try to interfere or push you in any particular direction? Well, the White House response to the film can be divided into two parts before they actually saw the film and after they saw the film. Before they saw the film, and it must be remembered that Ronald Reagan came to power in the United States believing in a winnable nuclear war. He thought there was such a thing. He also was under the impression that the missiles could be recalled in mid-flight. He met with Dr. Helen Caldicott at the, at the White House, the Australian uh, nuclear activist, who had to explain to him that the missiles could not be recalled any more than they can be recalled in Dr. Strange level, although they're not missiles, they're bombers in that case. So he was, um, they were concerned about this groundswell of controversy and uh, a movement for a nuclear freeze that was growing and aided, uh, and as some people thought, 
by the growing controversy surrounding the imminent release of the day after on, tel on television. And David Gergen, the White House press secretary, assembled a screening for the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the Pentagon to watch the movie and say, the president wants to know what we're going to do about this movie. By a weird coincidence, a childhood friend of mine was present at that screening. He was a psychiatrist who specialized in dealing with terrorists and he had worked for the State Department under Secretary of State Cyrus Vance. Um, his name was Dr. Stephen Piechenik. He resigned in protest when Jimmy Carter, as was, allowed the Shah of Iran into the United States to receive medical treatment for his, I guess, cancer. And Stephen said, you know, you've no idea what you've done. And sure enough, then followed the hostage crisis and all the rest of it. But he was still on call and he was summoned to the Pentagon. He said, you know, I hadn't spoken to him in 10, 15 years. And he said, Nikki, he said, imagine my surprise when I saw your name on this thing. I had no idea that this was your movie. So he was present at this conversation. And he said, you know, if you wanted to draw blood there, you succeeded. Those guys were shook up. And one general in particular, I don't know which branch of the service he was the head of, and sort of just sat there at the end. And Stephen said to him, um, the movie upset you? And he kind of nodded shortly and he said, you know, what, what upset you the most? Um, he said, when the missiles took off. It's hard to understand that words are not as powerful as images when it comes to things like asking people to imagine the unimaginable nuclear, you know, it's, it's one thing that movies have the eerie capacity to do for you is to imagine it for you. And that's what this movie does. I heard of a, a general on Castro's staff who said that the Cuban Missile Crisis had not been real to him until he saw the movie. So at this meeting at the Pentagon, it was decided that the administration would have to put someone on television immediately the movie was over to chill everybody out, and which is what they did. Secretary of State George Shultz conferred with television host Ted Koppel, and who said, Mr. Secretary, is this the way it's going to be? No, Ted, this is not the way it's going to be, and so forth. The other part of the story has to do with what Ronald Reagan's reaction was when he personally saw the movie. And he was distraught and extremely upset. In fact, his biographer, Edmund Morris, who was his official biographer and lived in the White House for three years, said that he only time he ever saw Reagan upset was in the after and for about three days following uh, watching the movie. So uh, it, it, it obviously resonated with him because in his memoir, he puts his diary entry into it, very well done, very disturbing and, and so forth. But apparently it was something of a meltdown. I, 
I got to know Edmund Morris, the biographer, who incidentally had won the Pulitzer Prize for his biography of Theodore Roosevelt, the rise of Theodore Roosevelt. And Ed said the, the only time he ever saw Reagan really flip out was after he had seen the movie. He just, those were not the kind of movies he was used to watching. They liked comedies and Hollywood fare. And, you know, this was the man who had starred in Bedtime for Bonzo. So, you know, and Steve Piacenic in that Pentagon screening had advised them, he said, you know, I wouldn't question the technical accuracy of the movie. I wouldn't try to fault it on those grounds. And, you know, and, and they didn't, they didn't go that route. They put George Schultz on and they basically tried to, to make the case that the Reagan administration's nuclear policies were best designed to prevent what the movie was depicting. Okay, thank you. Uh, I've just got two more questions, Nick. Um, one, um, if we can leap back to what you said earlier, no one was in favor of this film at ABC apart from one guy, uh, Brandon Stoddart, was that his name? S-T-O-D-D-A-R-D. Um, so was there anyone above him who was, who was pushing this film? Who was the driving force behind it? Was it just this one guy? It was him. It was him. him, right? And, and and my understanding, which I think is correct, is that he's the guy who did Roots, and Roots was a wild success for ABC, and he was looking for a follow-up, some an, an event television. In fact, as I say, this guy uh, who directed this television documentary about the movie—it's called Television Event. He was, Brandon Stoddard was looking for a follow-up to Roots, and he saw a movie called The China Syndrome, which was Michael Douglas and Jane Fonda and Jack Lemmon, and it was about a meltdown at an, at an atomic reactor. And at one point in the movie, somebody says, you know, if, if this goes where it looks like it's going, we're going to lose a state the size of Pennsylvania. Now, as it happened, the week the movie came out, there was a nuclear accident in Pennsylvania at a nuclear facility called Three Mile Island. You can Google that, Three Mile Island nuclear accident. So that sort of synchronicity turned the China syndrome into a success and a talking topic, you know, a water cooler conversation. And so that's, I think, is my understanding of where Brandon got the idea about what would a nuclear war be like as experienced, not in the halls of power, the corridors of Congress or anyway, but just, you know, for the rest of us, movie directors or short order cooks, it didn't matter, just regular people. And so, you know, he commissioned a screenplay that was written by Ed Hume, H-U-M-E, which was originally titled Silence in Heaven. And we went from there. Silence in Heaven. So that was the original title of the film, Silence in Heaven. Okay, excellent. And my last question, Nick, is um, did you receive any personal criticism after broadcast? For example, were there people in the media accusing you of being in favor of disarmament or being a, a Russian puppet, any of that kind of thing? Oh, yes. Um, the New York Post 
which at least then was a rag controlled, I think, by the rag merchant in chief. What was his name? Rupert Murdoch. On their editorial page uh, said, why is Nicholas Meyer doing Yuri Andropov's work for him? <laughs> Yuri Andropov being the then aging Soviet premier. And yes, I wondered if my career was over. Actors and, and teachers and writers had been blacklisted in the United States before, during the McCarthy era. You know, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And uh, so I, I wondered, I, I guess I probably had a few sleepless nights. Um, what I remember, you know, is that when this was, when I read this and when I went in and had a conversation with ABC, I think the first thing I said was, you will never get this on the air. This is never going to air. Television, network television, is in the business of selling advertising. That's how they make their money. No one's going to want to advertise this movie, which was unusually prescient on my part. And I said, you know, television serves the purpose to infantilize the American public. We make silly comedies about nothing, the flying nun or whatever it is. <laughs> this, this nun ain't flying. This is something else that's flying. This is going to be the shit hitting the fan. And you're not going to, it won't get on TV. And, and uh, this executive blithely assured me, oh, yes, it will. But I, you know, I think it fair to say he, he hadn't a clue how, what an uphill struggle this was going to be. So when you talk about um, how the spon there was no you know the sponsors basically withheld or, or ran away, I always thought that was because ABC thought this is such a momentous event, a television event, that it deserves to be presented without interruption. But it wasn't an artistic decision; it was simply that the sponsors withdrew and weren't willing to have their names attached to it. Is is that right? That's totally right. Apart from the popcorn guys. <laughs> The popcorn guys, and I want to say Commodore computer, but I'm not sure. But, um, and there were certainly, there were no ads once the bombs went off. I think ABC even realized that that was too ludicrous for words. Yeah. Um, you know, years ago, some network did a whole television series about the Holocaust, about the, about the annihilation of, of Jews and, and, and gypsies and homosexuals by the Nazis. And it was interrupted on occasion, you know, after scenes where bodies were being thrown in crematoria with ads for oven cleaner. And, the, you know, they didn't want anything like that. Okay. Those were all the questions I had. Nick, is there anything else you wanted to, to raise or, or to bring to our attention about the film? The film I suppose to date is the most worthwhile thing I ever got to do with my life. And I'm always put in mind of something that one of my absolute favorite authors, Leo Tolstoy said, all that is necessary for evil to succeed is for good men to do nothing. So it's not about the movie. It's about the people listening to you and me right now and what you are prepared to do to help save your home, which is planet Earth, where we seem to be stuck. 
And that is the end of our interview. My thanks again to Nick Meyer, director of The Day After. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to support it with a donation, please look at my Patreon site, patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or on my website, juliemcdowell.com. If you're a new subscriber, please take a look at the back catalogue of Atomic Hobo. I think I've got well over 100 episodes there. And I'll be back soon with another episode.